Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's, uh, let's bow before the Lord in prayer as we look to his word today. God, would you use these words to give us a far, far bigger vision of Jesus than we walked in this church having in our minds today. God, would you help us to appreciate, certainly not fully, I don't think it's possible to fully appreciate, but, but more fully to appreciate just who this man is and, and what profound implications that has in our spiritual lives and in all of life as we live in this world uh, filled with many different things competing for our hope and our affections, God, would you help us to see with crystal clarity today in the text of this passage that Jesus is worth our hope. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, every once in a while, there is something that happens that is just too important to ignore. Uh, no matter where you are or whatever you may be doing, you can't help but pay attention to it. It just deserves a certain response. For example, uh, we've all seen videos of that military dad who comes home unannounced. There's tons of these all over the internet, right? But basically, usually one of their kids is doing something fun. They're playing in a, in a school basketball game or something like this. And it was just an ordinary game at first until her dad, that she thought was still across the world, walks into that gym. And, and right away, the moment that she sees him, that basketball game stops. <laughs> it stops and she runs across the gym with tears in her eyes. She hugs her dad. Everybody's watching. And you get the sense that this nagging anxiety that's been within her ever since her dad left, this anxiety, the being apart, and, and the uncertainty even of not knowing whether he might get hurt or even be killed someday, all of that turns into this flood of joy 
and happiness. Just a minute ago, uh, they were down by eight points, and she was focused on winning this basketball game. But now she could not care less about that game because her dad deserves this response. I want you to just imagine all that happens. The dad walks into the basketball game in his fatigues, and she sees him. And instead, she just kind of rolls her eyes, says, hey, dad. Hey, it's just the third quarter. Sorry, can you just, just give me a minute, right? Something would be so terribly wrong with that picture, with that response. When something this important happens, we just have to get, we, 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 we can't rather, just get back to life after we quickly wave at it, right? Some things are so important, they just deserve a far bigger response than that. And in this case, they deserve a response of joy. Now, so far, as we've seen in the book of Colossians, this uh, letter to the Colossians is really about hope. It's not so much about joy. Uh, in, In particular, Paul is encouraging this young church not to drift from the hope of the gospel, not to drift from Christ. That's really the point of this letter. And first, he reminded them that they have already heard the gospel that they need to keep hoping in. They've already heard it. And the most important thing is that they not forget it and that they not drift from it, which is easy to do. We saw that in the first week. Um, Last week, then, he said that he's been praying for their spiritual flourishing to continue. And we saw that their spiritual flourishing depends entirely on this God who, he says, has delivered them out of darkness by transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son, who we know is Jesus. This Jesus is the hope that's laid out for them in heaven. This Jesus is the key to their spiritual flourishing. And so this week, Paul is going, to in, going into striking detail, rather, about who this Jesus is. He paints a picture of Jesus in these verses that is so glorious. We cannot help but to see he deserves a response. And in particular, we're going to see this Jesus always deserves all of our hope. It's the big idea of our passage today. It is not enough for us to sort of wave at him from the bench of our basketball game and then get back to the game. No, when we truly encounter this Jesus by faith, our entire life has to stop. (laughs) And we have to pour all of our hope into him. And again, not just once when we first come to faith, but every day and forever. And in our passage today, Paul is going to show us why that is, why Jesus is worth all of our hope, and why it really matters that we see this And it really matters that we understand it. And so first, let's just trace this argument through Paul's passage here. He makes this argument in two parts. And first, in verses 15 to 20, he's basically arguing that this Jesus he's just mentioned is the greatest possible hope. Now, I want to tell you, I want to warn you up front, we are going to spend a disproportionate amount of time in this point of the sermon. And that is very, very much by Design Because I have to tell you, these are some of the most weighty and glorious truths about Jesus in all of the Bible. 
They really are. If you are ever going to get lost in one of the points of my sermons, I hope you get lost in this point of my sermon. I, I, I thought of what this is, is like. I would compare it to a bowl of huge diamonds of all describing who Jesus is like. And what we want to do here is just pick up each one of these diamonds and just gaze at it together for a bit to better understand. And by the end, I hope you will understand that this Jesus is our greatest possible hope. The section here, 15 to 20, is broken really into two parts. Uh, first, Paul explains that Jesus is the point of all creation, and then he explains he's the point of our redemption. And so first he focuses on creation in verses 15 to 17. Look with me at verse 15. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so we're off to a great start. <laughs> That's a big deal, to be the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's saying God is spirit. He is not a physical being. He's not visible even. But Jesus exists as a real human in the created world in order to make God visible. Uh, and So right away, this kind of brings us to this remarkable mystery of uh, God, that he is Trinity. He is three and he is one. It's an incredible, mind-boggling mystery. God is Father and Son and Spirit. And they're all distinct persons. The Father is not the same as the Son. The Son is not the same as the Father. The Spirit is not the same as the Son or the Father. They're all distinct, and yet they're inseparable. You cannot and do not get one of them apart from the others, but together they make one God. <laughs> and Paul is saying that somehow within this triunity of God, to see Jesus is to see all of God. Jesus says of himself in, in John chapter 14, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's just incredible. It is hard to even ponder that. The wording of this is also meant to draw us back to Genesis chapter 1, where we read that Adam and Eve, and therefore all of humanity descended from them, was created in the image of God. But I want you to notice here, Jesus is the image of God. In other words, it's, it's as if we were all made as copies from a divine mold. We were made in the image of something greater. Jesus is the mold. Jesus is uh, the ultimate human being. He is the perfection of humanity who alone can make God's glory and power fully visible. He is the image of the invisible God. Next, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, often people will be tripped up by this because it almost makes you wonder, right? Well, does that mean Jesus was created? Is he just created by the Father? And the answer is no. In verse 17, Paul even says he is before all the things that were created. He's also going to tell us that by him all things were created, right? And so Paul is not saying that Jesus was created by the Father first before everything else. That's not what this means. Jesus is fully God, which means he is eternally existent. There has never been a point in time in which Jesus did not exist. And so what does it mean then that he is the firstborn of creation? Paul is using family language here to describe Jesus' authority over creation. 
his authority over it. Uh, in the first century, a family's inheritance was always passed down through the firstborn son. In some ways, this is almost like a legal title to be the firstborn son. For instance, if you were a younger sibling in a family and you had a falling out with the firstborn eldest son of the family, that might mean you were out of luck. You were actually disqualified from the family inheritance because it was passed down through him. Uh, in the all-time classic movie, uh, Lion King, uh, Mufasa and Simba are sitting out. There's this scene of them on Pride Rock, and they're looking out at the entire kingdom. And Mufasa very famously says to his son, Simba, everything that the light touches will be yours, right? And this is the point. They're looking at the kingdom. And the reason he says this is because Simba is his firstborn son. It turns out when your dad's the king, you inherit the entire kingdom. Everything the light touches. And this is what it means to be the firstborn, is to have authority over the family inheritance. And if, again, if your dad's the king, it's a kingdom. If we think back to what Paul said even just last week, this makes perfect sense. Do we remember what what Paul said about the inheritance just last week. Last week we read that God the Father has qualified us to share in an inheritance. And how did he do that? By transferring us out of our darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so in this case, King Jesus has authority over quite an inheritance, we'll just say. This is some inheritance. His inheritance is he is the firstborn of all creation. All of it. In other words, everything ever created rightfully belongs to this Jesus. And by the way, the church, this is the inheritance that we've been qualified to share in. <laughs> this is what we will inherit. We will inherit with Jesus all of creation because he, God's beloved firstborn son, happens to have authority over all of it, which is, is what exactly what Paul makes very clear next in, in verse 16. Look with me at verse 16. And I want you to notice here all of the alls, okay? Uh, this is not just a portion, and you'll get the picture very quickly. For by him, Paul says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the beginning. I'm sorry. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So sorry, teacher, just a question. Are there any things that aren't ultimately about Jesus? No. <laughs> None. All of the things are about him. And church, this is why Jesus is our greatest possible hope because any other thing we could possibly hope in ultimately was created by him and through him and for him. He's the point of it all. And Paul is saying we are never going to find a better hope than Jesus in things. We never will. All is the food, your, these rules and rituals they were concerned with, the, even these mysterious spiritual beings that he calls here thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, whatever they are, if they're visible or invisible, all of them are just things. They're part of the created world. Jesus, on the other hand, is the point of the created world. In him, all these things 
hold together. Next, Paul shifts his attention to our redemption. Jesus is also the point of our redemption. In verses 18 and 20, uh, to 20, look with me at verse 18. He says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, from this point on through chapter 3, Paul has a lot to say about the body. He has a ton to say about the body, and I want you to notice that in the coming weeks. Paul has a lot to say about the body of Christ, but for now, he basically just introduces us to a really uh, prominent word picture that you're probably very familiar with, the idea that this church is his body in some, in some way. Uh, this church, which is made up of all who are redeemed and gathered into local churches like ours and like the one that he's writing to, that church is somehow Jesus' body. You'll see what I mean, I think, in the weeks ahead. There's all kinds of connections between his actual body, which is the hope laid up in heaven, and this body that we're a part of here on earth. But first, Paul's just introducing this idea to us that the church is the body and Jesus is the head of that body, which means he is in charge of that body. He is the most important part of really understanding what that body is even all about. He has authority over that body. He is part of the body. Heads are part of bodies, but he's the most important part of the body. He is the part that controls and guides and directs all the rest of the body. If you look with us at verse uh, 19, he is the beginning <laughs> of what? Exactly, right? All of it, right? It just means he predates everything. He is himself what led to everything. It's a really big deal. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This is referring to his resurrection. He's also the firstborn of eternal, everlasting life. This is also part of our inheritance in him. Uh, usually when people die, um, they stay dead. Uh, but Jesus died to reverse that trend for all of us. He is the firstborn from among the dead, right? In saying that, that means he won't be the last. Uh, because he rose, we in him will inherit an eternal life. So I want you to notice why he rose from the dead. Paul says he rose, this is so important, that in all things he might be preeminent. To be preeminent literally just means to be far more important than everything else. That's what that word means. In other words, Jesus is not just a really, really, really big deal. No, he is the greatest possible deal. There couldn't possibly be a bigger deal than him. See, Paul is not leaving much room for competition with Jesus here, right? He's cutting right to the chase. We get a clear sense if we have the impression that anyone or anything is more important than him, we've been misled. Church, he rose that he might be preeminent. And here's why he's preeminent. Look at verse 19. He says, for in him, this is incredible, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is not just the point of creation. He's also the key to redeeming all of creation. This is how our redemption works. It works by the blood of his cross. I want you to notice that the gospel is about a specific set of historical events. 
This is what the gospel is. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a way to live. In particular, it is about the death and resurrection of this man. It is by the blood of his cross that God is reconciling all things to himself. And what this means is that if we don't have a cross, we don't have a gospel. What this means is if we have not understood and made sense of what Christ has accomplished for us in the cross, we have not even begun to make sense of who Christ even is. When the body of Jesus was nailed to that cross, church, here's what this means. The fullness of God was nailed to a cross. It is this act of God reconciling himself to redeem us that is the good news of the gospel. And again, look, this Jesus right here, the Jesus Paul is describing, is the very center of this entire plan to redeem all when Paul, when Paul says here that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in, in Jesus, the fullness of God, chances are he is trying to address this Colossian church's temptation to drift from Christ in search of a better experience of God. Again, this is the point of the letter. He's basically saying, listen, there is no more of God out there in the created world for you to experience. No, when you received this Christ by faith, you received the fullness of God. One scholar puts it this way. I, I just love this. He says, in him and in him alone, God has decisively and exhaustively revealed himself. All that can, we can know or experience of God is therefore found, he says, in our relationship to him, in our relationship to Jesus. This is just so important. I want to read it again. All that we can know or experience of God is found in our relationship with Jesus. You see the point of this here? Paul is saying, rather, we can't say, yeah, we believe in the gospel of Jesus and then go searching for a more full experience of God somewhere else or a better thing to hope in somewhere else. It doesn't make any sense. To know this Jesus is to experience the fullness of God. To hope in this Jesus is to hope in the fullness, all, of, of God. And so maybe you've heard someone say, look, maybe you believe in these old Christian doctrines. Maybe you do, and that's great. But me, I experience God in other ways. I experience God, for instance, in nature. I like to hike or be in the mountains, and, and that's, that's how I encounter God. Not in the Bible, not through faith in Christ. It's in nature. Here's the problem with that. Uh, it, it's not that we... Uh, can't experience God in nature. We absolutely can. All of creation declares his glory. We sure believe that, absolutely. But the Bible also says this of nature. It says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It is by this word of God that he's made all things, and this word of God has become flesh Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the fullness of God in human form. And so can we experience God in nature? Oh, absolutely. That's the point of nature. We are supposed to experience God in nature, but that glory of nature is meant to point us to a far greater glory in the person of Jesus Christ. When we find ourselves awe-stricken by the sheer glory of the created world, 
When, when we are beside ourselves at the sight of, of a mountain range, for example, God wants us to see Jesus is the point of the mountain. He is the point of it. That mountain was created by him and through him and for him so that in him we can experience the fullness of God. That mountain is just a glimpse of it. We are meant to look at Yosemite Valley. We are meant to look at Mount Everest and think, Jesus is this big of a deal. This is how big of a deal he is. Now, to call this description of Jesus flattering is probably the definition of an understatement, right? And, and I think that's really the point. This is what Paul's trying to do here. He is trying to overwhelm our theological imaginations even. He is trying, if we are tempted to drift from this Jesus, to stop us dead in our tracks. He is trying to show us, no, no, all those things out there in the world are all about Jesus. They will never bring you more hope than he will. He is the greatest possible hope, period, end of sentence, end of book, done. And next, he tells us why it is so crucial for us to see this. He tells us why it's so, it matters so much. We see that he is the greatest possible hope because next, he says, he only redeems those who keep hoping in him. Jesus only redeems those who keep hoping in him. In other words, it's not enough to hope in him once when we first heard the gospel uh, and then move on to other hopes. If that's true, that wasn't true hope. We have to keep hoping in him. In verses 21 to 23, Paul walks us through the who, the how, the why of the gospel, but ultimately he's trying to lead us to this big if of the gospel. So let's walk through these just, just briefly, the who, how, and why, and then we'll get to the if. First, who does Jesus reconcile to God? Look with me at verse 21. He says, and you, who once were, recon or were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is who Jesus has come to reconcile. In other words, he's come to reconcile sinful people. Uh, people who were once very far, alienated from God, hostile to him, doing evil deeds. That is who Jesus came to reconcile. And so if we don't see ourselves as sinful, you can see that we're not going to see much value or usefulness in this gospel. The gospel is, is not about God congratulating religious people for being religious enough. No, it is about God redeeming sinful people uh, who are hostile even to him. That's the who of the gospel. Next, how. How did Jesus reconcile them? It says he did it in his body of flesh by his death. Now, throughout Scripture, there is a connection between sin and death. If you even think back to Genesis chapters 2 and 3, uh, when God says to Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one I told you not to, if you rebel against me, you will what? Surely die. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin, the, the payment that we deserve to get because of our sin is death. There's a connection here. In other words, the reason people die physically even is because we're corrupted by sin spiritually. But just consider this. What would happen then if a sinless man died? And the answer is that rather than being defeated by death, like we will be, death 
was defeated by him. This is exactly what's happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. By dying, Jesus defeated death for us, and he did that how? He did it in his body of flesh by his death. Next, why did he reconcile us to God? What's the the goal? What's the outcome? He did it, Paul says, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before God the Father. This is really important. Often when we talk about the gospel, we talk about Jesus dying to save us from sin and from death and from all of the terrible things that hold us back in life. And certainly, of course, those are true. That's very true. Uh, But the truth is Jesus actually died to save us from God. See, before he redeemed us, we were not presentable before God. Uh, We were not holy. We were not blameless. It even says we were hostile to God. We were coming after him. We were at odds with him. Therefore, if we stood before God in that condition as his enemies, as his adversaries, then he would have done what a holy and righteous God always does in the presence of sin and rebellion. He would have poured his wrath out upon us, and he would have been perfectly just to do so. But this is why he sent us Christ. This is why he sent us his son, to reconcile us, those hostile sinners, in his body of flesh by his death. And here's why. It's so that we can be sanctified, so that we can be changed and transformed. It is so that we can actually become holy, that we can be made like Jesus. And so the gospel, I want you to see, is not about God making a compromise with us over our sin. He did not just say, hey, look, I know you're really, really sinful. You even hate me. You're hostile towards me. I know that, but I'm going to let you in anyways. I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of feeling like a nice God today. No, that, that is not the hope of the gospel, church. The gospel is about Jesus destroying our sin. It's about Jesus cleansing us from our sin. It's about him taking our sin upon himself, within his body even, killing it for us in his body by his flesh and then replacing it within us by his righteous, resurrected life. Now, this this is incredible news. This whole passage is bursting at the seams with incredible news. In Christ, we have the promise of resurrection. We get to inherit all of creation. We even get to be made perfect and holy like him. But finally, there is one big if to all of this. There is one condition that all these blessings of reconciliation hangs on, and it has to do with our hope and what our hope is in. If you look with me at verse 23, Paul says that all of the blessings of this reconciliation apply to you. He says, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This was the temptation for this church. This is the point of the letter. Uh, They were tempted to shift from the hope of the gospel. Paul is saying here, listen, if we do that, church, it turns out none of these blessings will be ours in the end. None of them. Now, you may be thinking, you probably are thinking, I imagine most people would think in hearing that, well, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) 
um, seems to me, it sounds like this whole thing is riding on me. And I can just lose my salvation if I get distracted here. Uh, This is where we have to think and we have to read very carefully. Uh, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I want to draw your attention back to chapter 13 where he told us that God has qualified us for an inheritance. He told us that God has delivered us out of darkness. The whole point of last week's passage, if you remember, all our spiritual flourishing depends on him. This week, even here, he says in verse 22, Jesus has now reconciled you. And then in 23, if, (laughs) if you continue in the faith. He has now reconciled you if you continue in the faith. This is how the Bible always talks about the assurance of salvation. This is how the Bible always talks about how to know if you are really a Christian or not. On one hand, God is totally sovereign over all things, including our conversion, including every aspect of our salvation. He delivers us. He reconciles us. He has even, Paul says, predestined us for adoption into son- as sons before the foundation of the world. And so we can know that this is true in general. But the question is, how do we know that it is true for us? And the Bible's answer to that question is time. Time. The way we know if God has really delivered us by grace through faith is that we will continue in the faith not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is why, by the way, uh, we cannot just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I I walked down that aisle that one time. I I raised my hand in that one service when the preacher asked me to. I I threw the stick in the fire at Bible camp, right? We, We can't think that way. Because the question is not, have you had an experience in the past? Uh, the, The question is, was that experience the result of real faith in this real Jesus? Church, all the faith in the world in in a make-believe Jesus will never save anyone. And just because we say we have faith now will prove to mean very little, maybe even nothing, if we do not continue in that faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting either in the present or in the future from the gospel we've heard in the past. And so in this passage, Paul is doing two things here, right? First, he wants us to see the unrivaled glory of Jesus, that he is preeminent over all things, and therefore he is the greatest possible hope. And then he wants us to see what's really at stake in that hope. He wants us to see how important it is that we do hope in the glory of this Jesus, not just for a while, not just when we first come to faith, but always, right? Never shifting from the hope of the gospel. And so what is it that Paul seems to be saying here? If we were just to distill it down, I think he is saying that this Jesus he's describing here always deserves all of our hope. Always. This passage is ultimately about Jesus and what he deserves. It may be tempting to shift from the hope of the gospel. And it is tempting to shift from the hope of the gospel. That's why this letter needed to be written. But it is never right. And it will never end well. And so maybe this is an encouragement you really needed today. Uh, Maybe you used to be very captivated by this awe-inspiring glory of Jesus, but he just doesn't quite seem so preeminent in your life as of late. 
because other worries or cares or desires have crept in and they've captured your spiritual attention and over time led you, even by degrees, to shift from the hope of this Jesus. So what I wanna do next to apply everything Paul's just said is I wanna just consider together, when we find it hard to hope in Jesus, uh, what might be going wrong in us? What, what could be broken? I think we see two possibilities in light of what Paul said here. Two things could po be possibly wrong if we find it hard to hope in Jesus. The first one is this, is that our view of Jesus may be far too small. Far too small. This is why he starts the way he does with this grand view of Jesus. Uh, these days, many people, and even Christians, are very skeptical of doctrine. Uh, some are intimidated by doctrine because uh, it seems way too complicated and, and they don't want to overthink it, right? Uh, some people are opposed to doctrine because they think by focusing on knowledge and the mind that uh, it makes it seem less spiritual, the Christian life. Uh, some people are leery of doctrine because they just think it, it's divisive. And all doctrine does is it makes Christians disagree and argue with one another. And without a doubt, there are plenty of ways to basically idolize doctrine. It is very possible to have the right doctrine even and have very little hope in Jesus. And that's certainly true. Uh, and it's something we need to avoid. But I want you to notice that when Paul tries to encourage this church not to drift, how does he do it? He does it with a flood of doctrine. A doctrine is really just, it's an historical claim of, of who God is and how we can relate to him. That's, that's all that is. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to blow our minds with here in the first half of this passage. He is saying Jesus is the greatest possible hope because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the beginning. He's always existed. The fullness of God dwells in him. He rose from the dead to atone for our sins. He died. Uh, he is the head of the church. Oh, these are all doctrinal claims. And I think the reason Paul's piling them on so heavy here is because if we truly knew how big of a deal Jesus is, we would never shift from the hope of him. On the other hand, uh, if, if we believe in just a, a tiny little Jesus who's just a fraction of what Paul just described here, we absolutely will shift from him. We need this kind of a colossal, reality-shaping, doctrinally-rich vision of who Jesus is. And so let me ask you this today. Is this the Jesus you believe in? Is it the one that Paul's describing here in these verses? Do you believe in the eternally existent Jesus who has always been alive from eternity past? Do you believe in the Jesus in whom all things hold together? Do you believe in the Jesus through whom and by whom and for whom all things exist, who is preeminent over everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, rulers and authorities? Has the Jesus you believe in reconciled all things to himself by the blood of his cross? Does the fullness of God dwell in him actually, even today, even now? Is your Jesus still alive? Will we be raised from the dead someday because he was raised? Is this the Jesus we believe in. 
Or do we believe in a Jesus who is really not all that preeminent over much? A Jesus who's really more of an idea than anything else. Uh, kind of a happy thought, if you will. We kind of picture what he looked like back in the day. Maybe a couple of the things he said, love your neighbor. We, we know we're supposed to hope in him, but we don't really spend much time thinking very deeply about who he is or, or the fact that he is still alive and reigning in heaven and all that because, you know, the, all that doctrine stuff is just so lofty and so irrelevant. It's just impractical. Listen, nothing is more practical than a crystal clear vision of this Jesus. Nothing. Friends, please hear me out today. There, there are very few ideas that are more dangerous to your soul than that one. This idea that doctrine, mm, I don't really need that. Because we will never hold fast to the hope of Christ if our Christ is too small. We will never hold fast to the hope of Christ if we just throw him in a bucket with, with, with Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and all those other people who sort of gave people hope along the way. No, this Jesus is far greater than anyone who has ever existed. He is the reason that anyone has ever existed. And in him, life itself is held together. We may need a bigger vision of Jesus. Let's be the kind of church that regularly reminds one another of these truths. Let's be the kind of church that together looks to the word of God on a regular basis, if anything, just to behold the splendor of who this Jesus is and what he means for us. Let's gather every Sunday as his body to celebrate that the fullness of God still dwells in his body. Let's be so obsessed with Jesus together that everything else seems small by comparison. Which leads to the next potential problem here that, that could keep us from hoping in Jesus. First, our hope in him, um, our view of him may be far too small, but next, our view of everything else may be far too big. Our view of Jesus, I think, tends to shrink as our view of other things grows larger and larger. Uh, in many ways, the modern world is not helpful to us in this, right? Because the world we live in is designed to basically convince us that everything is the biggest possible deal. Everything, the iPhone is coming out, it's the biggest possible deal. A lot of people profit even just by capturing our attention in this way, by capturing our fear, by capturing our affections. We need to be wise to this and the effects that it has on our, on our spiritual life, even to live in the media landscape we live in. We need to be wise to that so that the things of this earth do not grow too big in our minds. Uh, I've, been, I've been paying attention to some of the headlines of major news sources this week, preparing to preach this sermon. Here's one that I heard from CN, I read on CNN. Financial Armageddon. What's at stake if the debt limit isn't raised? Wow. Financial Armageddon. Meet the Press, Chuck Todd uh, said a couple weeks ago, how we handle masks and vaccines is, quote, a test of our humanity. Wow. Here's, here's one from Fox News. Governor promises to fight Biden to the gates of hell as the GOP states mount their vaccine mandate defense. Now, my point is not to say that these issues are unimportant. They are, they are actually important. 
Uh, but I just want to point out our tendency to talk about important things as if they are preeminent, right? It's not just that we have a financial crisis looming. It's financial Armageddon. You've seen the movie. It's bad, <laughs> right? Uh, it's not just that masks and vaccines are really important to ending a, a pandemic. No, our humanity is riding on them. It's not just that government overreach is worth fighting in the courts. No, it's worth fighting to the gates of hell. <laughs> is it any wonder that Christians are drifting from the hope of the gospel? Is it any wonder that we're kind of apathetic about the church and its mission when government overreach rather than the kingdom of God is worth storming the gates of hell? And governors, rather than the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, are responsible to storm it. Is it any wonder we might drift from the hope of the gospel? See, all this hysteria has the effect of shifting our gaze downward toward the things of this earth. It also has the effect of making us lose hope altogether. Why? It was because at any point our civilization is going to collapse so we better go get whatever hope we can. And we better hurry because if we sit by too long, then the other team is going to get hope and they're going to gain power. And then everything will be ruined. It could also be that maybe our view of everything is just a little too big. Right? And I think, unfortunately, too often it is. Especially these days. Church, we need a colossal view of King Jesus that can right-size our view of everything else. We need to be so in awe of his resurrected life that our life starts to seem like a mist, which it is, by the way. We need our lives to decrease, that is, to become smaller in our minds and our hearts so that his life can increase. There is so much going on in our world today. There, there are so many reasons to desperately search for hope everywhere you possibly could find it. Uh, not to mention, uh, the members of this church did not have social media. <laughs> uh, they did not have a long stream of, of, of endless entertainment. They were not uh, constantly bombarded by the allure of marketing that was tailor-made to stir our affections and our hope. And even they we're still tempted to drift from the hope of the gospel. They needed this encouragement not to let the things of this earth become too big in their minds and distract them from the hope of Christ that was laid up for them in heaven. And so how much more so do we need this encouragement today? Uh, we are living through, I think, what will only be described as a revolutionary period of history. Uh, that is filled with unprecedented distractions. And the truth is, I don't think anyone has any clue where we will be in five to ten years from now even. But whatever does come in the next five to ten years or beyond that, uh, let's be committed to keeping it in perspective together. Let's make Christ so huge in our hearts, in our minds, and in our church that everything else starts to shrink. Let's continue, church. Let's continue in the faith, stable and steadfast 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel because this Jesus that we believed in back then still deserves all of our hope and he always will. Let's pray. Father, we are struck today by this description. You cannot read this description if you are taking it seriously and be unchanged by it. You have not given us the option of a Jesus who is not really that big of a deal. That is not an option for us anymore after we have heard what we've just read today. We only have to choose if he is preeminent over all things or if we want to keep looking for something else that might be. God, give us the spiritual vision and the clarity. Give us the faith we need to stay stable and steadfast. Keep us rooted never shifting, God, from the hope of the gospel. Give us a colossal vision of Jesus and help us to shrink our vision of everything else, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.